as everyone said, my name's Dave. Um, I'm a member of the um, preaching team um, here, here at City Hope. I've been a member of City Hope for about ten and a half years, which is as long as I've um, lived in the area. I live just down um, the end of the canal. And my three-year-old hasn't yet fallen in it, but did look very close this morning to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> made us a bit nervous. Um, so um, this week's talk is entitled God's Amazing Door. And my three-year-old also came up with this. Now, it wasn't because he helped me prepare the sermon. That would have been very helpful. Um, but uh, it was kind of by accident. Um, and we'll come back to, to why a bit later on as to why um, I've called this talk um, God's Amazing Door. Okay, but before I go into um, the talk in more detail, I just want to give a bit of the context in terms of how this fits in um, to the series um, that we're looking at. So um, over the course of our local Sundays this year, we are looking at the seven I am, they're called the I am sayings of Jesus um, in John's Gospel. Now these parts of the Bible are particularly important as they're essentially Jesus declaring his divinity. He's declaring in these that he is God and nobody else could truthfully say them and that ultimately also the claims that got Jesus killed are the thing that got him crucified. Now the reason for that is that the Pharisees, who were the local kind of religious leaders at the time, who were very powerful, um, they probably could have coped with Jesus being a bit of a crazy preacher, but for him to declare that he was God uh, was one step too far, and we'll be exploring that in a bit more detail um, a bit later on. So that's why um, these sayings were so important 2,000 years ago, but actually they are really important to us today as well. And the reason for that is that they are really amazing claims that transform lives and they have the power to transform our area at Rotherhithe um, today. So um, let's bear that in mind as we go through. Um, so before I continue, um, shall we pray? Lord, I thank you that you are God. I thank you uh, that you are God personified on this earth. And I thank you that you gave your life for us. And I pray that as we look at um, two, of these, um, two of these statements you made about yourself, um, about your divinity today, that you will um, touch us and that you'll also um, motivate us um, to bring this message to the community of Rotherhithe to transform lives in this area. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So that's the context of the series of talks. Um, so um, as I said, there's seven of these sayings in total. We've already looked at two of them, uh, but we've only got four local Sundays left. So if you work out the maths, five into four doesn't quite go. Um, so this week, we're going to look at two of those sayings. And these are the two that we're going to look at. We're going to look at, I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he should be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And we're going to look at, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Okay, and actually works pretty well looking at these two together. As you can see from the references, they're only a couple of verses apart in the Bibles. So they're all part of the same uh, kind of image that Jesus is using as he speaks. Um, and, they're and, and they're essentially really well um, linked together. Um, and we can also see from these that they, as I said, they're pretty big claims, right? So at the top, Jesus is saying that he can save us. And in the second one, Jesus is saying that he lays down his life for us with a sheep. Okay, so these are, these are big claims. Um, that Jesus is making. And before we dig into these big claims in any more detail, what I want to do is just to give a bit more of the wider context. I think that really helps to bring out the depth of their meaning. Um, so in a little bit, we're going to read sort of the whole of the first part of chapter 10, which takes us up to these verses. So just to start with, I want to give a bit of context of what's just happened in sort of chapters 8 and 9. Um, so in chapter 9, Jesus is in the middle of his ministry. He's going around um, Israel. He's um, preaching to people. He's, he's ministering to people. And in chapter 9, he's met um, someone who's been blind um, for their whole life, I think. Um, and he heals them. And he does that in quite an unusual way. He spits on some mud. 
rubs it in their eyes, then goes and tells them to wash it out in the pool, and when they do that, they can see. Quite an unusual way to heal someone. Um, and the Pharisees are a bit upset about this. We mentioned those earlier. Um, the Pharisees were already a bit annoyed by Jesus. Prior to that, he'd been um, in Jerusalem. He'd said some pretty sort of controversial things in the temple and started to kind of um, get some of the Pharisees quite annoyed. But they were particularly miffed about this healing because Jesus had done it on a Sabbath day when really you're supposed to have rested. So the Pharisees are quite miffed. They come out to investigate what's going on. And there's this whole debate going on in chapter 9 between some of the Pharisees. So some of them are going, oh, you, know, you sh- shouldn't heal people on the Sabbath. Some of the Pharisees are going, but, but he healed him. He must be God. And there's this whole debate going on, and they're basically trying to decide, is Jesus a prophet, a false prophet, God himself, or something completely different? Um, And they even involve the man and his parents, who really don't want to be involved in this conversation, in this this sort of debate. And they ask the blind man who he thinks Jesus is. And the blind man goads them a bit. He he says, says it's really ironic. Um, Jesus has opened my eyes, but yet you can't see who he is. So he sort of uses this image and, and... that probably upsets the Pharisees even more. And then at that minute, Jesus comes back to see the blind man, and the f- some of the Pharisees are still with him. And he says to them, and he says to the Pharisees quite directly, pretty much, that they are guilty of sin, as they know the law but can't see the truth. So um, that's, that's where we're going to pick the story up, and we're going to pick it up in um, John chapter 10. So I'm just going to read this. So it says, Very truly, to be serious, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Okay, so there's really quite a lot going on in these verses if you try and unpack them. So there's lots of imagery. So we see Jesus compared to the gate and to the good shepherd. We talked about that at the start. There's also a load of sheep. There's some sheep which seem to follow Jesus and a load of other sheep who don't. There's a gatekeeper, a thief, a stranger. Um, there's a hired hand and there's even some wolves ca- chucked in at the end as well. So there's a whole load of imagery going on. Um, and there's probably good reason why the Pharisees are all a bit confused by what's going on as well. But there's lots of imagery here to unpack. So what I thought we'd do to try and make um, sense of it all is to just unpack some of the stories together. And then I'm going to focus on three key aspects of Jesus' character, which I think we can draw out from this, which I think is particularly p- pertinent for us as a church community in Rotherhithe, and particularly at this stage as we're thinking of um, moving here sort of full-time January. Okay, so let's start by thinking about the whole sort of shepherd-sheep thing. Um, pretty common illustration in the Bible, is anyone here a shepherd or any anyone ever been a shepherd? Anyone owned a sheep? I, I was going to say, I, I was going to have money on you, Alan, on this. <laughs> You've owned a sheep, that's good. 
<laughs> have you owned a sheep in this country or elsewhere? Goats, Goats in this country, okay. That's, a, that's the other side, it's a different thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> does anyone know any shepherds? Yeah, a few people know shepherds, that's good. Anyone meet Surrey Keys Farm? Yeah, 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 okay. So um, I, I think probably, perhaps unsurprisingly, our experience in the area of shepherding um, is slightly limited. Um, I have actually met some shepherds before, um, so some of you know that I have close links to a mission in Lesotho, which is a small mountainous enclave in South Africa, and I visited there quite a few times. Um, Lesotho has a lot of sheep. It's a bit like Wales in that respect. Um, <laughs> merino sheep, which are bred for their wool, very high-quality wool, were introduced to Lesotho in the 1800s, and wool is still one of their main exports today, um, and all the sheep are, ra- are reared in the mountains by shepherds. Um, so this is... Uh, th- that's not. This is... Um, a shepherd I met on one of my trips. This shepherd looks after a very large flock. There's actually a hundred sheep. Um, that's not obviously not all of them. Um, and his name, Lesotho names are really good. Okay, so his name is Mlatinyani, Um and he's aged um, 17, uh, which is actually in some ways is quite old um, for a shepherd in Lesotho. So most of the shepherds would be um, boys. And the way it works in Lesotho is that the oldest son, once he's sort of got big enough to look after the sheep, which is probably only talking about seven or eight, he will be given the responsibility of looking after the sheep. And then um, as his younger brother gets older, he will take over and the, and the oldest son will then go to school. Okay? So Milhatinyani, due to, sort of I think he was one of the youngest, he only went to school for five years and he only went for half days because the rest of the time um, he was looking after the sheep. Um, it's a pretty tough job. It's pretty solitary. You're on your own. You're exposed to the weather all the time. So he's wearing this traditional Lesotho blanket that they all wear. This is actually in the middle of summer, um, but apparently... It's okay to wear a blanket in the middle of summer. But in, in, in winter, um, it snows quite a lot. So he's, he gets all these kind of extremes of weather. Uh, when it rains, it rains and all that kind of stuff. So he's really exposed to the weather. And the hours are pretty unsociable. Um, you're alongside the sheep all the time, searching for pasture, um, searching for water with them. And sometimes that will mean you're away from home um, for several nights at a time. Um, and... This is kind of uh, what Mulhatinyani will do when he's away from home is very similar to what Jesus is talking about in his first few verses in the example. So, within in the Sutta, there are lots of kind of communal pens that have been built by shepherds and communities over time. So, they're sort of made of little piles, piles of rocks, essentially, to make um, the fences. And so, when he is away from home at night, he will put his sheep in one of these pens um, so that he knows where they are. It's really dark at night. So, remember, remember that, it's no lights. Um, and he will then sleep next to the sheep because he's got nowhere else to go, but also because he, he needs to look after them. And that's kind of the situation that Jesus was talking about. Um, and I, I, the other side of that is uh, if there's other shepherds around, they may also share that pen. So there might be several flocks in that pen overnight, and then in the morning they will go their separate ways um, to wherever they're heading. Um, so Milhatinyani's role as a shepherd would be very similar to what was happening in Israel in Jesus' time. Um, like in Lesotho, shepherds uh, would also have been the lowest in society. Okay, so it's not a great job. Um, y- you know, y- you're kind of like it's one of the, like the lowest roles in society that you can have. So Jesus uses this shepherd picture both because they understand it. There's a lot of shepherds in Israel, like there's a lot of shepherds in Lesotho, but also because he's saying, "I've come to meet ordinary people." To or you know, even the lowest in society, less than ordinary people, if you like. He's come to minister to everyone. Um, it's no accident that the shepherds were some of the first to see Jesus after he was born in the stable. So most of us will be pretty kind of familiar with this image, the first sort of I am saying, 
um, that Jesus uses that he is a shepherd. It's uh, an image that we explore quite a lot. There's clearly quite a lot of passages in the Bible um, that draw on this image. But actually what I've noticed when I'm in Lesotho is that they preach on this quite a lot. I don't go that much, but I've heard it preached on quite a few times because um, I think because they identify it, it's right, it's cool to them. But also they react to it in a quite a different way to how we would react to this message um, in London where our most experience of sheep is going to Surakee's farm. Um, so, uh, and, I, and I think there's, there's several reasons for that. So they understand that providing for sheep is really tough, that leading to still water to pasture can often mean long mountainous treks um, through very um, difficult terrain. They also understand the sacrifice that a shepherd makes to care for the sheep. They understand the loneliness, the fact that there's a load of other things you can't do, the fact that you can't go to school, um, and that you're basically living a poor life off the land. They'll also understand the closeness of the shepherd to the sheep. So this shepherd has a really strong bond with his sheep. If you spend all your time with, he's got a big flock of 100 sheep, a lot of them would be 20 or 30 sheep. You know all those sheep individually, you know when there's something wrong with them, um, you know all their sort of different quirks, and you know which ones are old, which ones are young, you know, you know everything about those sheep, and you have a really strong bond. But I think most important, they also understand the importance of sheep. So about two-thirds of um, families in Lesotho are subsistence farmers, okay, so they live off the land. And actually what that means is that animals are their wealth, okay? So they'll have a piece of land, but it's not really worth anything. They'll have sort of a temporary hut um, uh, you know, built out of local materials, out of mud and stone, uh, which again isn't worth very much. So their wealth is essentially all tied up in the animals. These are the things that they can sell if they ever need to um, raise money for anything. And for Mahatanyani, these sheep are also his inheritance. So he knows that eventually he will inherit these. In fact, he gets to keep half the land. That's how it works. So that when he, he's older, he will have his own flock. And um, so they know that losing one is a big deal. They really get the importance of the sheep. So that's the image of Jesus as a shepherd. But actually, I think the one as, uh, as Jesus as a gate is a bit more unusual. Um, so let's look at this in a bit more detail. And in particular, let's look at what Jesus is the gate to. And there's three things I want to draw out here. The first is that Jesus is the gate to salvation. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Now, this for us is the primary aspect of Jesus that we need to focus on. Jesus is the means by which we can repent of our sins, say sorry for what we've done wrong, and have eternal life in heaven. Jesus saves us from death. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I will save you um, from death. Jesus, and the other thing here is, is he is the gate to salvation. He's not one of the gates. There's not lots. Let's read what it says in Acts 4, chapter 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The sheep pen only has one gate, if you like. There's only one way out. But what's also interesting here when we look at Jesus' words is actually there's lots of other things that can divert people from that. So at the start, we talked about the Pharisees. These are the thieves in the first few verses. Yeah? So people who are deliberately trying to take people away from the true message of salvation, away from Jesus. They're trying to steal them out of the pens so that they can't find um, um, their salvation. They can't hear Jesus' voice. And if we think about that in modern day times, there may well be some modern day Pharisees in, in the sort of same sense there were um, in biblical times. So perhaps religious leaders who are very self-righteous, who focus on the law, what's right, what's wrong, um, rather than bringing the grace of Jesus to people. And for us, um, for those of us who are Christians, that's also a challenge for us that we don't become like that, that we don't become all about what's right and what's wrong and, and forget to, um, you know, 
the main message that Jesus is the one who saves. We need to watch that for ourselves. But actually, I think um, another aspect of sort of when I think about modern-day Pharisees is within our society there's a growing influence of people who um, are essentially a very strong atheist. That's almost their religion who similarly try to steal people away from the truth of salvation by saying there's just nothing spiritual, there's nothing that can save them, it's all about, um, it's just us, it's just us. Um, so the Pharisees are one group of people who try and distract people away from Jesus' voice who, who could prevent them from being saved. In verse 5, Jesus also talks about strangers. So he, so, and I think this can represent sort of other distractions in the world that can take focus away from Jesus. So Pharisees are trying to deliberately take people away. The strangers, I think, are more just people who are wandering around and people go, oh, I might follow him for a bit. Let's see what that means. Um, and I think really when um, Jesus is talking about these strangers, if we think about that in the modern world, that's probably things like um, materialism, addictions, drug, alcohol, things like that, which can distract us away from the saving message of Jesus because we try and find um, s- salvation in other things. We try and um, get our sort of comfort from, from other things that we see um, in the world. But actually, I think there's a third group, which are even, which are even bigger distractions, and kind of the main thing that distract people away from finding um, Jesus as the saviour, and that's the other sheep. Yeah? So within the pen, there's sheep that follow Jesus, and then there's a load of other sheep who just stay in the pen when Jesus, when Jesus calls. And I think this kind of represents like, the strength of peers and like, almost like a sense of inertia in the world. Like, I'm quite happy in this pen. It's nice. Look, it's got a lovely wall. There's a bit of grass to nosh. I'm happy here. It's lovely. There's loads of friends here. You know, I'm happy being a sheep. Um, and I think um, you know that can that can actually be a really big thing for people that the distractions of kind of just the world and the other people they meet and all that kind of thing can prevent people from hearing and following that voice of Jesus. Now, for us as Christians, in verses three to five, we are told that we will not follow these things because we know Jesus' voice. So Jesus' voice prevents us from getting distracted by the Pharisees. It's a sort of false teaching gives us discernment, if you like, from strangers, from the distractions of the world, and from um, the other sheep. And this is a great reminder for us to make sure we stay focused on God's word and commit to prayer so that we don't become distracted, right? Jesus' voice is the thing that guides us away from those. So we need to make sure we're tuned into that through reading the Bible and and listening to God's voice through prayer. When thinking about this, I was also struck by the thought that the sheep are known by who they know. The sheep are known by who they know. In other words, they're known by the fact they follow Jesus. That is their identity. That is the thing that sets them out in this whole story. And again, I think that's a great chance for us to City Hope in Rotherhithe to make sure that we're known in the areas of people who follow Jesus. That's how we're known. Because that's, uh, you know, if you think about those other sheep who are sort of stuck with inertia and, you know, I'm happy here and, you know, everyone else is doing this. If we can think of ourselves as being followers of Jesus who people who are known by that, that can, you know, ultimately people need to respond to Jesus' voice and that's an action by themselves. But for us, as other sheep in the pen, we can be alongside them in that and help them along that journey. So I think that's um, a really um, important um, thing to draw out from this as well. Okay, so that's the first thing that Jesus is the gate to. Jesus is the gate to salvation. The second thing um, that Jesus is the gate to is security. So the next part of the verse is they will come in and go out. So they can come, b- so once we've, we've come out, we've responded, we've been saved, we can also go back into that sheepfold and be under Jesus' protection. 
and I think this is this again is a really important message for um, us for Rotherhithe as a community at the moment because security has become a really big topic of conversation over the last few weeks. We've talked about um, obviously with Manchester and then in the last couple of weeks being just a couple of miles from London Bridge. Security um, has really become a top you know, top thing people are thinking about. Um, and I, I've kind of sensed this. I work over in Canary Wharf, um, and I feel in the office that there is, you know, there's lots of talk about being strong and showing defiance, and, and you know, th there's there's lots of positive reasons to do that. But I also get underneath it there is an increased sense of fear. So in Canary Wharf, they bring out more security guards, and uh, and everyone just seems a bit more twitchy. Um, and and we c there's kind of that under underlying sense. Uh, Rachel, my wife, conducts some youth choirs which meet in the city, and um, some parents didn't want their children to come to those this week because they were they were worried about the terrorist threat. And again, I can understand fully the reasons for that, but uh, it's just illustrative of the fact there is like I think a bit of a growing sense of fear within London because of what we've experienced in the last um, couple of weeks. So I'm just going to reread verses 11 to 13 because I think uh, this is this is a really um, powerful thing to read at this time. It says, "I am the good shepherd." The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the, f attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Um, now this passage drew me and back to thinking about Melatignani. Because uh, there's quite a good parallel with him with here with him looking after the father's sheep, his father's sheep in the Suti. So they really understand um, caring for the sheep is a family business. They don't use hired hands. Now, some of the reason for that is just they don't have cash flow, right? So it's, it's a money thing. Um, but it's also because of the point I said about this being their wealth. It's Mahatanyani's inheritance. So they are making sure that um, they have a good shepherd, part of the family, committed to the security of the sheep. And if sheep are looked after well, if they feel secure, the flock will increase and they produce good wool. Um, and you know, it, uh, and they can have amazing. They can have an amazing impact on the whole sort of um, well-being of the flock. Now, Jesus is so much more than Melatignani, right? So he did lay down his life for us, and and what Jesus gives us, and the security he's talking about here, is an eternal security. And what I mean by that is, the eternal security is a security that, because of Jesus' death, nothing can separate us. Um, who who have been redeemed, so we follow Jesus' voice. Nothing can separate us from God's love okay now um it talks about this in romans chapter 8 so let's um have a little look at this it says for i am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in the creation nothing will be able to separate us from the love of god that is um that is in christ jesus our lord so this is the um eternal security that Jesus is referring to here. He's saying there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that can that can take away the gift of salvation that we get by calling by following his voice um, in the first part. So our security, our peace comes from the knowledge that this salvation is guaranteed and that no wolves, whatever shape they may take, um, can take us away from that. Okay, so Jesus is the gate to salvation, he's the one that saves us, and he's the gate to security. No one can take that away from us. The third thing that Jesus is the gate to, um, and they all start with S, so it's good, this, is, um, is sufficiency. It must be right, they all start with the same letter. Um, <laughs> so it's the gate to sufficiency. So they will come in and go out and find pasture. So the pasture is what the sheep need um, to the s sustain them. And this really is where the good shepherd comes in. 
once we have um, accepted Jesus' offer of salvation, step through that gate for the first time, he continues to help um, and sustain us. And I was going to um, look at just the start of Psalm 23. So Psalm 23 is very well known um, and um, talks about God as our shepherd. And it says this in the first few verses. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Chris was talking about this just before, just at the end of the worship time. He leads us beside quiet waters and refreshes our soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. This is a really great picture. Um, this was uh, written by David in the Old Testament. It's a really great picture of Jesus taking us out um, to pasture for rest. Now, a guy called Philip Keller, um, who was a shepherd, wrote a book uh, called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. So he was giving his perspective as a shepherd of um, some of the interpretation that he said around this. Um, and he said that in order for a sheep to lie down, in order, for, if you like, for it to find rest, um, it needs four things. Now, the first thing a sheep needs is to be full. It needs to have a full stomach. A hungry sheep will keep going around, keep looking for food, keep finding grass. Now, for us, Jesus told us that he is the bread of life. He feeds the deepest hunger in our soul. So Jesus brings us uh, the full tummy so that we can rest. And God is Jehovah Jireh, the God who meets our needs. The second thing a sheep needs um, to lie down is that they mustn't be um, afraid. So a sheep will, lie, uh, will not lie down if they're fearful. You know, if you ever go for a walk in a field of sheep, they'll sort of stand up and they look a little bit on edge. And then if you get too close, they sort of scarper in the other direction. They can't lie down um, if they're afraid. And we know that in Jesus, we don't need to be afraid. He is our eternal security. And we also know that God is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. He's the place we can go for protection. Thirdly, the sheep must be um, content. So if there's lots of flies buzzing around or fleas or things biting them, or bothering them, they'll stay standing. They won't lie down. So they must be comfortable before they can lie down. And now Jesus is our healer and our comforter, and God is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. So the Lord brings the Lord brings us what we need um, to be content. And um, finally, the sheep need harmony in the flock in order to be able to rest. So if there's lots of friction, there's lots of butting around, they're all jostling for position, then they simply can't relax and lie down. Now, Jesus is the vine. He's the thing that holds the church together. And if we remain in him, he will bear much fruit. And God is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. So in these four ways, Jesus brings uh, and God brings everything that we need to, um, to, to be sufficient, to be able to um, refresh our souls, to be able to lie down. In Corinthians 2.12.9, it says, God's grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, God's grace is that gift of salvation through Jesus dying on the cross, and that's all we need. I think that's really important. So sometimes we think, you know, yes, we can say Rotherhithe needs salvation, but the sufficiency is saying that's all Rotherhithe needs. All it needs is God's salvation. That in that, there is sufficiency. Uh, now, again, I think this is um, a great message for the area that we live in. Um, as I said, I work in Canary Wharf, um, and it's quite most people seem quite stressed. And people generally don't seem that satisfied in Canary Wharf with life, even though a lot of them, of course, will be pretty wealthy. So, um, but, but it's quite stressful. And that's not just because they can never find their way around in Canary Wharf. That might just be me, but you know, do you go left, do you go right? Oh, no idea. Uh, <laughs> I've been there two years, still no idea. Um, so uh, 
that was kind of my conjecture that people in Canary Wharf are bit, uh, uh, you know, generally stressed and not very satisfied with life. So, uh, but I'm an actuary for my job, and that means I like statistics and maths. So I thought I'd do some research and find out if there's actually numbers to back this up. And it does turn out that London typically ranks um, as the least satisfied area in the UK, and the UK is not like the highest bar. Okay, so we're so sort of surrounded by people who um, aren't that satisfied. Um, now, Time Out did a survey in 2015, and they found uh, that the following things were most likely to increase Londoners' happiness, um, and these are in descending order. So the first thing they said was most important was, and see if you identify with these. So the first is more sleep. I've got two young children. I definitely identify with that. Um, having a short commute. I've got one stop, so that's fine. Uh, exercising in the past week. That, that's not for me. Uh, <laughs> that would make me feel more stressed. Uh, is it cycling instead of taking the tube? I need a bridge for that. Uh, so <laughs> uh, the next one is having sex. I'm not going to make any comment on that. And then the last three are um, being in a relationship, not relying on coffee. Coffee, big big dependency, certainly in the offices in Canary Wharf. Um, and the last one is calling family in the past week. Um, so I, you look down that list, there's sort of uh, pros and cons. And actually, it's interesting what's missing. So they found things like alcohol and drugs did not make people more satisfied at all. Um, so you know, there's elements of that list we can probably identify with, but actually, I think it's all very well, but it's missing something, and that's Jesus. Yeah. So Jesus is the one who can sustain us, and when we realise that, that's the thing that will bring us the ultimate satisfaction. So Jesus says in this, uh, in in the passage we're looking, at, he says he's come, he has come that we may have life and have it to the full. So he is the gate to sufficiency, to fulfilment, contentment, and peace. Okay, so let me just um, summarize this. I'm sort of coming into land with this. I've got a bit of time. I can pray a bit at the end. It's good. <laughs> so let me just summarize what we've heard today. Um, so firstly, we've seen that Jesus is our shepherd. Um, he guides and protects us, um, but he's also our gate. And that gate leads to um, salvation. He's the one who saves us if we follow his call. To security, eternal security, that means nothing can separate us from God's love. And sufficiency, he gives us all we need. And these are the things that we need, as, as we just heard, for an abundant life, one of peace and contentment. And if you don't know Jesus, if you've not heard his voice the f and you'd like to know about that for the first time, then please speak to me afterwards um, or speak to um, someone else um, in the congregation that you come with. And I and I, I guess the other thing I've tried to draw out as I've gone through these, that these are things that we need. But also, for me, these are the things that Rotherhithe is crying out for. I think it's a great challenge for us as a church as we think about moving to this area and trying to impact Rotherhithe um, more. We want to see this area transformed by the voice of Jesus. We want people to go through that gate and experience um, these things. Now, as I said at the start, um, the title of this was from, uh, I got from Jacob. So Jacob was um, singing, um, what's the song? Uh, our God is a great big God, uh, which goes how good it is to be a part of God's amazing plan. But he was playing with our wardrobe doors at the time and changed it to uh, God's amazing door. And I was just thinking, th this was yesterday morning, I was just thinking through my point, and actually I thought, a God's amazing door, that really summarizes it really well. I mean, yeah, as I say, he didn't really help with the rest of the sermon. But, um <laughs> but for me, I think this is a thing to, for us to focus on. This is God's amazing door, an amazing gate that leads to salvation, to security and sufficiency. Let's pray that that will be our focus in our lives and also something which can transform our community as well. Amen.